Hi, I'm Roy Collin, and I'm the creator of the podcast. You can find everything about me and the five podcasts on bio.link forward slash podcaster, and you'll find it in the QR code there. I'd also like to thank my sponsors. If you or someone you know is struggling with anxiety and want to know how to be 100% anxiety free in six weeks without therapy or drugs, Daniel Packard Anxiety Solution Program Company offers a six weeks system that permanently solves anxiety at an astounding 90% success rate. People who join the program only pay at the end once they have clear, measurable results. If you're interested in learning more, go to permanentanxietysolutions.com where you can book a free consultation with Daniel. Do you have high blood pressure or want to get off the meds? Doctors are amazed at what Zona Plus can do. Get a $50 discount with my code ROY. Go to zona.com slash discount slash ROY and you'll see the QR code for all my sponsors down at the end. Quality Polish manufacturer of metal products for telecommunication and workshop equipment and other metals. If you'd like a brochure, you see it in the QR code and you just let us know if you would like a quotation shipped internationally and very competitive rates. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. So this was originally supposed to be for the speaking podcast, but it's actually going to go out on the awakening and meditation as well. And you'll probably know later why I'm doing that. So my guest, I'd love to actually be able to memorize this, but uh, I won't be able to. So you're an award-winning entrepreneur, angel investor, thought leader, and sought-after business coach. In 08, you founded and scaled Canada's toy shop, Tech for Kids. And later co-founded Pila. Is that how you pronounce it, Pila? Yeah, you can call it Pila for sure. Pila. And a hundred million sustainable phone case startup and created an entirely new category. In 21, you and your team at Pila successfully launched a record-breaking 9.8 million crowd-sourced campaign for Lomi, which mm. I know I've done crowdfunding. That is incredible. For the world's first smart kitchen composer so we've actually met we were trying to prior to recording was a 2012 at a high performance forum with darren hardy in california and then mm -hmm. i think a year later for an elite one or a couple of years later and i connected with you i remember the conversations we had please welcome brad peterson pedersen so it's all good. You you can't offend me. It, call me whatever you want. Just uh, don't call me names. <laughs> so how do I pronounce it properly again? So Patterson is the Danish way to say it, but people call me Peterson because it's just, you know, uh, living where I have for so long, that's just become part of, uh, yeah, just part of the vernacular. Excellent. So the reason why I've decided that I want to put this on the tree is because obviously entrepreneur, like the speaking one, you've done some speaking, you know, plenty mm. of speaking, but also I've heard you, I've talked about meditation, that you do meditation and just through your business journey and what you're doing with Lomi, I think, because with the awakening, I'm, I'm trying to just make change and make the world a better place, which I know just from listening to you, following you, I know that that's your mission as well. So mm. I suppose, first of all, welcome to the show, shows. Well, thank you for including me, Roy. We, uh, as we were talking about, we've known each other about 10 years now. 
And uh, I always uh, was impressed by your 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 moxie and your inventiveness. You know, this Irishman who went to Poland and had all these businesses and hustles going on. And uh, as I said, I, I'm reminded of you almost every day because you were very generous and gave me this uh, really beautiful coin, uh, Polish coin, I believe it is. Um, although I've never been to Poland, but I'm assuming it looks like it is. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's great to be reconnected again. Brilliant. So. I, I know I started at a young age being entrepreneurial, but just from my research, you're similar. Like you've had a lot of businesses, but when did it begin? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. There's this sort of topic, is entrepreneurship something you're born with or is it something that you learn about as you you grow up? Uh, you know, is it nature, is it nurture? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I, I know that I had sort of the advantage of the fact that, you know, I was born a, a curious and a bit of a mischievous kid. I got myself into trouble as a kid, but not bad trouble, just, you know, broke the rules, got the strap at school, that kind of trouble. Um, just because I was constantly pushing the, you know, the boundaries of, of what, what were the real rules, what was really possible and, and trying that. But I also had the privilege of being born in a family of people who had business minds and were, um, were, were, were business thinkers. So I think the combination of those two really had impact and influence on me, even though my career path was really to be a chiropractor. Um, you know, I was, uh, so my father, he's a chiropractor, his father and uh, mother were both chiropractors. And my great grandfather was actually the very first chiropractor in Denmark. So there was this like long legacy of Pettersons who were chiropractors. And ever since I was like a, a young lad, I was told you're going to grow up and be a chiropractor like your daddy someday. And I just kind of nodded and said, yeah, that, that sounds probably right. And in fact, I, you know, started that journey. I went to school, took my pre-chiropractic and was going down that path. And, um, but prior to that, I'd had all these kind of like businesses that I had started. They were real businesses, but there were ways to make money. You know, I would sneak into golf courses at night with my snorkel gear, dive into the ponds, collect the golf balls, take them home, clean them up, put them in an egg carton, sell them for five bucks. You know, I had a wood cutting business where I used my dad. So it was a perfect business. My dad's chainsaw, his truck, his gas. Um, and then I'd go and, and, you know, cut all this wood, split it, and then haul it to people for five bucks less in the competition. So I had all these ways that I was just being inventive of how I could create value and, and create my own economy. So I was inspired by the idea of that. Um, but yeah, started down this path of being a chiropractor. And, you know, the luckiest thing that ever happened to me is that while I was in school, I went past this beautiful woman in the hallways who later turned out to be my wife. And she had one more year left in her degree. Um, and, you know, she wasn't really interested in doing a long distance thing. So I said, well, I'll hang back for a year and, and, you know, wait for you. And then we'll go to school together. Well, you give somebody who is got entrepreneurial tendencies, a year of time and capacity, they're either get themselves in trouble or they get themselves in business uh, or maybe both. And in this case, I, I actually got into business and started down this sort of securitist path of building my first real uh, enterprise, which happened to be in toys. Excellent. And like, I, I believe your wife, Kelly, is is her name. Yeah, you, you actually, you work together as well. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. We're one of those rare exceptions where we, as I've come to learn, it's not that common that, you know, husband and wives actually not only do life together, but actually work together. But yeah, she was involved. She actually helped me. So she was the financier of the very first business because she had a stable paying job. 
early on and I did not. And so she was the one that got things going. And then later on, as we got the business up and running, she came and joined the team and we, we co-created the business together. So she was intimately involved in the business details right from the get go. And to this day, we still are partners in every sort of aspect of our lives. And that's 30 years later. That's incredible. And I mean, I know a lot of people, some people make it work, others don't. How do you have the relationship where you actually can switch off from the business and go home and have a normal conversation or does it ever happen? (laughs) No, our pillow talk is always very interesting. It's sort of this, you know, but here's the thing. I like, I don't feel like we compartmentalize life. Like life should be integrated, right? If someone asked me, what do you do for fun? I would say I, I, I work. I actually enjoy work. It to me is fun. Now I also do other things. I like kite surf and I mountain bike and, and ski and all that kind of stuff. So I like that kind of fun, but I actually really love what I do in terms of creating value for you know people on the planet. And, and therefore our life is really this melody of, you know, we're working, we're playing and it just integrates together. So I, you can't really tell the lines are really blurred between what we're doing and that. Um, but I would say, you know, the key to that kind of a relationship being successful is number one, trust. You have to have a high level of trust. Trust comes from, you know, transparency, you know, that you're very vulnerable about who you are and what you're doing. So there's no surprises. The only person likes a surprise is somebody on their birthday. So surprising your spouse is rarely good unless it's her birthday and, you know, or or an anniversary event. Um, and then just really investing and leaning into communication. And I would say there's two things that we've done as part of our practice that we've learned that have made that relationship um, as, as strong as it is today. Number one, we have like a, a mandatory date night every week, Wednesday nights, can't book us. We are out for just a dinner with us, a uh, great meal, bottle of wine, and we take turns kind of planning it. So I plan, she doesn't know what's going on one week and I kind of look forward to the surprise of that. And then the next week she does the same thing and it's a surprise for me. And so it's kind of back and forth, these small little gifts of, of, of time together that, you know, are, are a bit of a, a surprise to look forward to. So that's number one. And then number two is every Sunday we have this mandatory connection point where we review the week. And, um, you know, we, we actually did this wrong in the beginning, but the point of review is just to become aware and that awareness helps you create course corrections where needed. So we each come to that meeting, first of all, starting with gratitude, because you want to get an abundant mindset, thinking about all the goodness that you've had in your life. So we talk about all the things that were great. Um, we share that with each other. And then we each, we rank ourselves as far as how we showed up as, in my case, a, a, uh, a husband, a father, a lover, and um, and a provider. And then she does the exact same thing. And on hers, uh, it's obviously a mother, but the last is that she's a homemaker now. And she really looks after the family office. And, you know, the format is what worked well. What am I really excited about this past week? What didn't work? And, you know, some self-reflection on where we're seeing some things that we didn't, didn't go as planned. And then how are we thinking about this for the week ahead? So, so what now, what in terms of, um, being able to to take those learnings and actually apply it for the week ahead. And then we provide each other an opportunity to have feedback. And we've just found that those practices have done an incredible job of keeping our relationship fertile. Um, because I've come to learn that the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. And apathy is actually the, the Greek root of that is lack of passion. And it's really 
easy to see how most relationships just drift slowly through neglect. And it's not intentional. You just wake up one morning and suddenly realize that you're just different people and why are you in this relationship anymore? So if you want it to grow, it's something that requires active uh, engagement, fertilizing that, um, that soil for a meaningful relationship to actually grow something abundant. Beautiful. Love it. Love it. So with the toy company that you grew, I, I was a Dynatech originally and then a tech for kids. So you might take us through the whole journey there because I think it's fascinating, the the story there. Hmm. Yeah, look, it was, um, so I, I grew up in the prairies of Canada. Uh, where I grew up, the only thing we really were known for were agriculture and oil. That's what you did if you grew up in that part of the world, unless you want to be a chiropractor, of course. Um, and but I was always just a, a big kid. I was playful. I, I loved just, uh, again, I was curious and I love things that fly. And so I read a story in a magazine about a kid who invented a toy that was a flying toy and it could go really, really far. And it was kind of a regs riches story. I was super inspired by it. And um, I thought after playing, I bought some, I played with it with my buddies and we're like, wow, this is really cool. And then I thought, well, maybe we could sell these and market these in Canada because you know I had to order them from the States. They weren't readily available here. Maybe there's an opportunity. So I contacted the manufacturer. And fortunately for me at the time, they were as naive about Canada as I was about toys. So it kind of made this perfect marriage of ignorance. Um, I put together a business plan. They named me their distributor. And suddenly I was the you know Canadian distributor for this product. And I didn't have a clue. And, you know, all I needed to do was just start trying. And, you know, I, I found out the hard way that, you know, just trying to get these in stores was hard because you had to tell a story. It was a very demonstrable product. And if you didn't see it work, it didn't really make sense. So with that in mind, I hired a kid. We traveled around to all these festivals and events. And I was basically a carny for uh, a couple of years where we would like basically sell these things. But when we would stand in a in a field and throw it back and forth. I mean, we would sell 100, 200 a day at 10 bucks a pop. And so it was like something that was pretty exciting because there was cash involved and I could see the possibilities. But I also kind of came to the realization that that doesn't scale. You know, at the end of that career, I'd have just like one big arm from all the throwing of this thing. So I had to figure out a better way to market the product, to tell the story. And, um, you know, it was actually the perfect product because it really, you know, we knew it would sell, it was the right price point. It just needed to be the story to be told. And so at that time, we had a very famous quarterback, uh, Canadian Football League. I'm sure for some of your listeners, that'll seem form, but we actually have a football league in Canada, not footy football, but, you know, American football. Um, and uh, he was a famous quarterback. And, and somehow through just connections, I got a hold of his agent and we agreed to a deal where he'd endorse in exchange for royalty. And I shot this videotape of him throwing this thing from end zone to end zone on a football field. And from there, we put those videotapes in the stores with the product stacked around it. And it was just like amazing. Suddenly it was demonstrable and these things were selling like crazy. And uh, that was like the very first product. And as we created incredible traction in Canada, a number of other manufacturers started to take notice and say, hey, we need somebody to help us solve our problems in Canada. And very quickly over, call it a 10-year period, we went from this like basement startup with one product to becoming the largest toy distributor of our kind in Canada. And along the way, um, we were ranked amongst the top 100 fastest growing companies in Canada five years in a row. Uh, I was nominated for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Uh, all these accolades and things are awesome. I'm in my mid-20s, so, you know, life is good, feeling really, you know, great about how, how life is going. But I've come to learn 
that a little bit of ego can lead to a lot of overhead and, you know, hubris uh, is sort of like the beginning of the end in terms of any great enterprise. So in 2006, I came back from a family vacation. We just had a record year thinking things are all great and it's going to be an amazing, you know, next year ahead. I came back and I get a call from my business partner and the CFO at the time. He said, Brad, we got a problem. And I'm like, okay, lay it on me. And basically he told me that while we'd grown the top line, we had done so at the expense of the, the bottom line and that we had anemic margins that had gotten us in trouble with um, our debt to uh, equity ratios with our bank. And suddenly we were upside down in our covenants. And so we went from being heroes to zeros by getting put in special loans. And I wrestled that business for you know six months, finally found someone who'd put new capital in, but they'd only do it if we went through a restructuring. And that is a fancy word for bankruptcy where they basically try and clean up the cap table and, and change up the, the balance sheet so that you can put fresh capital in so that there's less obligations and liabilities. And of course, that was a very terrible time because I also had like a million dollars of friends and family money. And so this was something that weighed heavily on me. I mean, going home at Christmas and Thanksgiving was not, not an easy um, uh, prospect at all. Um, and we tried to make it work with that new capital coming in. And for two years, we wrestled the company and ultimately we bankrupted it in 2009. And it was really, you know, it was an incredibly difficult time for me because so much of what we identify as entrepreneurs is that our what we do is who we are, particularly as a you know person who birthed the business into into the world. And so I had this incredible amount of shame that you know my business had failed, and that you know because I had lost friends and family money that I had failed. And it was, um, you know, I would say formative to you know at that point in time I could have just given up and called it a spade said hey this is this is it I, I've you know I, I've done my best and I, I can't do any better but I've come to learn that rock bottom can actually be a great foundation to build from and you know I uh, I was given a task by my investors to come back with a solution to recover their money <laughs> which is not usual by the way when when people invest money and they lose it they typically don't put any more money and they just they like they, they cut their losses and move on but they basically said look we we want to get our money back um come back with some sort of plan on how to do that and i didn't really have a plan but what i found is that if i sat down and just reflected what happened while it's hard to get clear on what you want it's much easier to get clear on what you don't want and so i just kind of went through the list of all the things that had gone wrong with the business and that i never ever wanted to uh do again and you know, sort of unconsciously, that became the foundation for this new enterprise called Tech for Kids. And Tech for Kids went from being a distributor to a manufacturer, went being focused in Canada to being global, uh, went from having inventory in a warehouse to selling FOB direct from our factories in China. And just it, it, it was a much better business model that we launched in 2009, shortly, like the financial crisis had just happened. So the world was not an easy place then, but it actually became uh, an amazing time as a reflect to launch a business. And so as I think about it now, that bankruptcy was my inconvenient blessing. Because if I had been successful in a distribution company, while I might've continued to build a nice company, the tech for kids business ultimately ended up being even a better opportunity than that was. And that scaled more aggressively, it introduced me to more possibilities, new connections, um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I suddenly was like, Hey, life is great. So fast forward to 2016, we've grown this, you know, kind of the Phoenix rising from the ashes. And I've got this new enterprise tech for kids, but I also have investors 
And the unsaid truth about raising capital is this. If you've raised outside capital, you've agreed to sell your company at some point. You've agreed to some kind of liquidity event to return the investment of those investors. And so I was getting pressure from them that, hey, we need to see some sort of way to return our capital. And, you know, we, we'd gone down the path of a couple of companies to try and figure out if we could sell the company. And, and the toy business, is, it, it's fickle, right? Things are high, they're low. It's, it's hard to have a stable toy company. There's not too many Barbies and Hot Wheels and Legos of the world. Those are rare. Those are the exception. They're, it's very fad driven. So it's, it's a difficult thing to, to, to try and sell. But we reverse engineered it. We decided, hey, instead of selling the company, what if we took our company and merged it with a similar size company and we could optimize our operations and contribute more to top line and give overall bottom line more profitability to the enterprise and use that as a part of a, a play with private equity. And we we found a company in the States, uh, a person I've been talking to over the years I built trust with. Um, we merged our companies together in 2017 you know, on paper, it looked brilliant. Like literally it was like, oh, this is a perfect marriage and we're going to have this kind of roll up PE opportunity, put the companies together. And 90 days after the merger, I get fired. <laughs> and it's like, what? Sounds like a this Steve like... Jobs situation. <laughs> yeah, it, it was surreal. Um, you know, I founded this company. It's, it's something I've been in the toy business all these years and suddenly I'm on the outside looking in. I mean, how does that happen? Um, but again, um, at the time it was horrible. It sucked. It was incredibly difficult. But as I reflect back, I've come to learn that the best gifts come wrapped in ugly paper because while it was terrible in the moment, it ended up being an incredible gift because through that I got released back to the marketplace, had an opportunity to, you know, I could have been a victim again of what had happened, but I chose to just learn from it and then start again. And, um, and also it had provided me financial freedom for myself and my family just to have more options, uh, through the whole, the whole transaction. So this time I could be more thoughtful and take those learnings and apply to something new. And I had three principles that I wanted to work on. First was, is that I was going to put my life plan before my business plan, which all these years I had said, Oh, my life is, you know, my family's valuable. My, my fitness is valuable. My faith is valuable. But if you looked at my calendar, really, I was like very myopically focused on my finance piece. That was the one thing I was spending most of my time on. So I wanted to change that dynamic. The second thing I said is the no asshole rule. Only awesome people, you know, none of what I hate, uh, more of what I love and less of what I tolerate. Uh, that was basically the <laughs> way I was thinking about it. And then finally, third is only impact. I want to do things that actually are going to matter. I mean, toys are great. It's awesome to put smiles on kids' faces, but it's very ephemeral. And I wanted to invest in things that actually had enduring value and could have enduring value, maybe even beyond my generation. So through that lens, that's where the opportunity to become a co-founder and peel a case, which eventually led to Lomi, which you've already talked about. So peel a case was the world's first compostable phone case. And the idea being is that I'd made billions of pieces of plastic things to put smiles on kids' faces, shipped them around the planet. And this was an opportunity to do it differently, to make some recompense, you know, make things out of materials that actually achieve a graceful end of life. And why phone cases? Well, 20 billion a year uh, in phone cases sales. So it's a pretty significant market. And the reason that is people change up their phones every two, three years, right? The new model never works with the old case. So you got to get a new case. And cases are made out of these really durable materials that are meant to last a long time, more than two to three years. And so it's a perfect opportunity to test out the, the thesis that can we make products that have the end of life designed at the beginning. So we did it with phone cases, um, scaled that as a direct-to-consumer brand. And then Lomi came out of 
the phone case problem that we, at the end of life, where do you put your compostable phone case? Well, not a lot of people have home composting infrastructure. I mean, our ancestors did, that was a normal part of life, but today that doesn't exist in many places. Um, so we created a machine that would take all organic waste, food waste, as well as compostables and turn it into a nutrient rich soil supplement, basically in hours while you sleep, you put it in, you hit a button, wake up in the morning, you got this uh, plant food and, uh, it, it's, and by far, actually, that's been even a bigger opportunity than the cases. And as you already talked about, we, we crowdfunded that. And I have also done crowdfunding campaigns in my previous life as toys. It's, it's hard. It's a full-time thing. I mean, to get you know, uh, to get eight figures is a pretty good outcome. You know, that that's something that you see once while nine figures, that's like actually pretty extraordinary. Like Peloton was 200,000, I think when they did their crowdfunding campaign, but to do uh, anything in the millions is something that's really, really extraordinary. So, um, we, uh, we just told a story that, you know, captured the imagination of the consumer. And, um, and that's been the basis of, of validating that we had, a fit for the audience we were trying to appeal to. And uh, we continue to scale that knowing that with every machine we deploy into the marketplace, we have probably the world's most democratized approach at how we can address climate change just by taking food waste and turning it into something that's valuable that is a natural decarbonizer with the output. Excellent. I, I want to delve into that further, but I, I just want to kind of go back a few steps and talk through because... I, I believe I, I I told you my situation when, when we met in California, where I kind of went from, you know, close to making five million to be minus five million and being mm. personally liable and just going through a lot of stuff. So I kind of know what it's like, you know, when you go through all of this with a lot of people in the last three years with the craziness, there's a load of people that through no fault of their own were made shut their doors or they were just kind of brought through the, the ground and like with the banks, you know, you mentioned banks restructuring. I had situations like that as well. They come in and they go, okay, yeah, we'll help you, but they don't, they're just taking the, they're just taking the money and they're telling you what to do. And it's like, eh, who, you're making all the money. I'm doing all the work. And then at the end of it, there's nothing left. So how did you get through? And it, the fact that your wife was working with you as well, how did you get through that point? Because I think, it will help others as well. And I'm just wondering, did meditation come into that as well? Because I know that mm. that's how I got through it. Yeah, look, I think um, those are very humbling moments um, when you feel that you're being targeted and, and it's really easy to feel like a victim of the circumstance. Um, so number one, I think it just comes down to, to reflection and taking the time to reflect um, you know, Stephen Covey in his book, uh, the seven habits has this really, um, amazing sort of analogy to, to, to understanding what we can control versus what we can't control. And so he has this idea that there's your circle of control, your circle of influence, and, um, then there's a circle of concern. And those are the things you can't control. And the only things that you can truly control in life are what you think, what you say, what you do and ultimately what you choose to feel. I mean, your first feeling will be felt. You're just going to feel that feeling, but what you land on ultimately is what you get to decide based on your choices. And when you break it down to those four things, you kind of come to the realization that your part of what happens is relatively small to all the concerns that are going on in the greater universe. Like, I think it's important to go through life with both a telescope and a microscope, right? The telescope where you zoom out to realize, okay, I'm a speck 
on the speck called Earth that's in this speck that's that's a part of this galaxy that's in the Milky Way <laughs> that is a part of an expanding infinite universe. And relative to all of that, my issues today are pretty small, right? I mean, I don't have a lot of, to do with how fast we're spinning around the sun or where we're traveling or how we're in that overall effect of the universe. But the flip side of that from the microscope perspective is that I get to control those four things. So while I can't control the world, I can control my world. And it starts with every single day choosing an attitude of gratitude. And to what you discussed in terms of meditation, um, you know, first of all, I'm going to be clear. I'm not a great meditator. I have a monkey mind. So sitting around trying to empty my mind of thoughts is not something that works well for me. But for me, the way that I've come to, to um appreciate meditation is through mantras and by saying things that are affirmations. And for me, that was um, scripture, actually, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you know, and particularly at this time in life where there's a lot of uncertainty, saying these words was comforting. I would just repeat to myself, trust in the Lord, lean on your own understanding and all your ways rely on him and he will guide your paths. And I just said that over and over and over. Um, and it just gave me comfort to know that, you know, there's my world, which I can control, but I have to trust in the creator and that he's control of the circle concern. Like he's actually got the bigger job <laughs> relative to anything speaking. Mine is pretty small and, and then control the things you can control. Like I would wake up in the morning knowing that, okay, you know, I am in special loans. They've come to collect in the house. Uh, I, you know, I can't change that but I can choose how I'm going to show up this morning. And, and I think it comes down to just not stopping. It's one foot in front of the other, get out of bed, you know, do your meditation, go to the gym, look after your health, you know, put positive stuff into your mind, read things that are going to help build affirmation and possibilities. And then it's amazing how the creative juices and the possibilities start to open up, but it's just about creating that fertile environment to allow things like that to grow. Love it. And what I like as well is, I mean, I think prior to what happened me, I kind of had the same thing, you know, you're working hard to kind of think, okay, I'm going to be looking after my family and everything. And now it's like, I block out time when I'm with my son, I make sure I go to the gym and everything. My life has just totally changed. So it was a good lesson to learn. I know sometimes we kind of think, how can you recover from this? And sometimes you say it was a blessing what actually happened because my life is a hundred times better because of it. Totally. Yeah. Like I said, it's my inconvenient blessings, like literally all these missteps um, and or misfortune that came my way. Ultimately, on the other side, they were interruptions that on the other side of that is a better version of myself. So it's understanding that, you know, pain and suffering are inevitable. Uh, you know, choosing to wallow it is optional, right? So what is the purpose of your pain and how on the other side of that pain can you turn the adversity to your advantage, those challenges to help build your character, the struggles to actually help give you more strength because struggles are going to happen and they're either going to beat the strength out of you or build it into you. So you get to decide what it means in the end. And I'd add one more thing to, this is kind of an epiphany for me in meditation because there's two things that I'm not very good at and I put them together and now it works really well for me. So sitting with my mind empty is not great. I don't do that very well. And I also don't do really well with stretching. 
And uh, so what I've ended up doing is putting those two things together. So every morning I get up and I do 15 minutes of listening to a meditative app. I have uh, um, one's called the um, the one minute pause. It's it's a brilliant app and you can go for one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. But it just, it's, it's like a prayer affirmation. Um, and then at the same time, I'm stretching. And it's, for whatever reason, both seem better and easier. And I come out feeling refreshed and rejuvenated and ready to, to go into my next. So it's, it's been a hack that I know has worked for me and may work for some of your, your listeners. Brilliant. And I, I didn't write it down, but I, you, you mentioned something about some lesson that your father taught you, but you didn't realize it at the time. And it was later, you kind of thought of what he had said to you. Yeah. My, my father was a very wise man. Um, you know, I, I lost him tragically in COVID a couple of years ago. So it was something that, uh, okay. you know, I, I've spent a lot of time reflecting on, you know, the impact he had in my life, but he, he used to say a couple different things. First of all, he used to say, don't despise the process for what it'll make of you. So whenever I was going through difficulties in business, I'd call up dad and say, dad, this is happening. And he'd say, Brad, don't despise the process. It's making you a better person. On the other side of this pain is a better version of yourself. And I hated hearing it, but it was uh, it was something that was formative. But probably the most impactful thing he ever said uh, when I was still in, a, I would say, my late teens, he said, Brad, in life, you're going to pay one of two prices. You're going to pay the price of discipline or the price of regret. Now, once you know that the price of discipline is going to weigh something, it's actually going to cost you. And, you know, in the scheme of things, it's going to weigh ounces. But the price of regret will crush you under its weight and weigh tons. And those words, like it haunted me. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like I don't love to be disciplined. I don't love to like, you know, like go to the gym and work out. I can't actually, I've never felt compelled. I need to go suffer at the gym. On the other side, I feel great though, after I do. It's the discipline of creating the habit to do it, right? But the one thing I knew I for sure didn't want to do was pay this price of regret. And there's actually a book out uh, called The Five Regrets of the Dying. And it's by a palliative care um, nurse by the name of Bonnie Rare out of Australia. And she, she was looking after people on their end of life. And she started to notice a pattern of the things they would talk about that they regretted. And at first, when I went to that book, I was expecting to read the stories of all the things they, that they maybe decisions they made or things they did that they wish they hadn't done. And the crazy part is of the top five regrets for the five were for things they didn't do, not things they did. And it just became really, you know, poignant to me to say, okay, like you only have one life and every morning you've been given this gift of time. You know, and with that, you get to invest your life, which stands for leadership, influence, finance, and expertise. How can you invest your life in a way that's meaningful to take the time, ensure that you didn't spend time, but in fact, invest it. Um, when I hear people say, I'm spending time doing this, no, 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 you're investing time, hopefully, to create some sort of impact for yourself, for others, and for the planet around you. Because you're, it's the only real resource that's truly valuable you have is your time and attention. So be very careful where you, you choose to invest it. And with the low me, because I think I was 26 when I bought my first house. I actually was recycling from then. I just always just felt it was the right thing to do, even though they weren't collecting it at that stage. You'd have to bring all the recycling to different areas. And it, what's kind of I've learned in a lot of countries, Ireland, Holland and a few others is they're not really recycling all the stuff when it, you're putting into the special bins. They're burning it all like I mean, it's all a, a farce. So when I see what you're doing, I go, ooh, this is good because 
one, it's helping the crops, like if you're doing it in your own garden. And I suppose it's like the washing machine, the dishwasher of, I don't know, the last 20, 30 years is just normal to see it. And I'm hoping to see that as well. So I suppose let's go, go into detail, explaining exactly how it works and what you can put into it. Yeah. Well, just because I know part of your thesis is conspiracy theories and, and unpacking what's real and not real. Um, if you want to take a deep dive someday, go into the recycling industry. Um, and it was founded by big oil companies. <laughs> um, the incentives are, have always been aligned with ensuring that their business doesn't get interrupted. Um, one could argue it's the greatest greenwashing scam in our history. I mean, after 40 years of practicing, because that's how long we've been, we've been working with recycling basically since the 70s. And it became sort of known and institutionalized in the 90s. And um, after all that time and practice, right? In North America, we have about a 6% recovery rate and nothing's ever recycled twice, right? Um, I know in Europe, it tends to be better, different places around the world, but the vast majority of it ends up incinerated, ends up in landfill. It just, it's its crazy. But what it does do is it gives the consumer a sense of, of I'm okay with what I consume because I've got these bins that magically take it away and they just come end up back in the in the um, in the ecosystem some way. And it's actually, unfortunately, not happening. So if you go back to our ancestors, right? Everything that they made were made out of materials that had this graceful end of life, right? They made things out of bone, wood, feathers, stone, things that you know were you know, around at that time. And uh, in the last hundred years, we invented these incredible materials, plastics, which by the way, I'm not anti-plastic. I think plastic is an amazing material, quite frankly. We don't have a quality of life today without um, the abundance and ubiquitousness of plastic, but we just haven't taken the time to think through the end of life with these things. And so, you know, our, our thesis of PLA case was how about we just adopt better sources of material that actually do what our ancestors did, make things that actually go back to the planet responsibly, you know? Um, you know, so Pela, which is the name, that's how you, it's Pela, and that's how people say it, but actual enunciation in, in Spanish is Pela, means peel. And it references to like an orange peel or an apple peel uh, that when you take it off and you put it in the ground, it actually biodegrades and becomes the the food and sustenance for something new to grow and so that as the 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 inspiration is how we want to approach all end of life and <clears throat> unfortunately you know um there was just not infrastructure for how compostable materials could actually be processed for end of life so that's where we came up with the lomi uh, <clears throat> concept is that we were looking for a way to give our phone cases their end of life and along the way, we discovered that while well, actually food waste, this massive stream of, by, by the way, our ancestors used to not have food waste. They would take their food waste, put it into piles in their farm, because most of them are agrarian, and that would then be turned to compost. So it become fertilizer for the next crop. Well, now most of it goes into landfill. And when it goes to landfill, two things really bad happens. Number one, it's anaerobically um, buried because it's in a plastic bag that gets covered in clay and or soil. So it releases methane gas as a result. And methane is like 80 times more potent than CO2 as a greenhouse gas emission. And it also forms leachate, which gets into the soil and leaches down into the water system. So there's two really nasty things that come out of that process. So this is something that was historically valuable. And we're just providing people a medium to harness that back and make it valuable again. And so the machine itself has the perfect level of heat, 
maceration, microbes, humidity that break down the organic matter into a dehydrated soil supplement that literally when it's done, like I take mine out, I fertilize my lawn. <laughs> it just goes right into my lawn. If you have a garden, you can actually, my, my, my business partner, he grows tomatoes. He's growing his tomatoes. Um, and it turns out that it's a superfood. Like it actually produces even better crops. Um, and we've got third-party studies saying that this is true. It's not just us. We have universities saying, hey, you're, you get 25% more yield. It's, it's an incredibly valuable um, resource. So we're taking something that is disgusting, food waste, turning it into something delightful and something that was garbage and turning it into gold, something of value, which is also addressing, you know, there's a shortage of fertilizer and there's also issues with, um, with uh, soil degra degradation around the plant as well because of monocrops and just, yeah, monocrop harvesting has not been great for the soil. So it addresses a bunch of things. And then the unexpected grade is it sequesters carbon. So it actually is a natural decarbonizer as well. So um, yeah, it's it's pretty incredible to see the, you know, how this one small machine can actually have such incredible potential impact for for creating more abundance on our planet. Like I have the bio bins outside. And the one thing is when when you open them, you just get attacked by a bunch of flies and everything. So <laughs> this eliminates it. And the thing is, as you say, you just plug it in. And to be honest with you, I was checking it out. I was thinking, okay, is this going to cost a lot of money? But it's it's like less than 10 cents to run. It's not as if it's a high kilowatt uh, thing. Yeah, I'd be correct in that. Say no. something. Yeah. Yeah, depending on uh, how you're powered, um, it is, it's it's pennies to operate it. It's really non-consequential. Relative to electric cars and all the other things that we're moving towards, this electrification utility is actually very, very small. And the greater issue is what you're speaking about. I had a green bin program in Toronto for many years, and uh, it was a blue job. Typically, the, you know, as a man, you have to look after it. You take those little bags out of the kitchen that are usually dripping with goo, put into the bin, uh, as you say, full of flies or maggots or whatever. And then when I put it up to the curb, there was a 50-50 chance that raccoons or rats or some other pest would have gotten into it and I'd be picking it up again in the morning. So this, again, takes something, going from that to putting your food waste in this, hitting a button, wake up in the morning and it's dirt. It's just, it's something you can pick up. It smells good. It smells like coffee grounds, actually. It's it's just, it's it's completely delightful and no more pest issues and uh, eliminating all that. And plus you take the weight, like it takes 80% and reduces it down to like 10%. So it's a very small output relative to what you put into it. So yeah, there's all kinds of benefits that just make the whole experience, you know, again, from disgusting to delightful. Like if, if you're growing anything with the crop rotation, that's why all the minerals are coming out and the, you know they don't go back as they're chucked into the landfills. This way you're actually putting the minerals back into the ground, which in turn gives you a better crop output. Exactly right. And with, is it charcoal then that you have to stop the smell? Is it that because you change? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Carbon charcoal filters again. And and actually those have about 45 cycles before they have to be changed out. And you just put the charcoal into the loamy, process it, and, and it becomes a part of the output that's again, healthy for the soil. So it's, it's the whole thing is very sustainable in terms of how it's been designed. And then there's uh like I have it written down there some pot or something like that you put into it as well. That, hmm. So what what exactly is that doing? Yeah, so it's the pod is is like a it's a probiotic tablet basically. So the microbes that help break down the degradation process uh, just give you a more healthy, faster, uh, beneficial output. Um, 
they're optional. You don't need to use them. I, I tell people like, you know, your dishwasher, if you use your dishwasher, you could put in dish soap uh, or not. If you don't, they're still going to be cleaner than they would be <laughs> otherwise. But, you know, with the dish soap, it actually gets a better output. So similarly with the pods, you're just going to get a better quality output. And with the similar with the charcoal. So if you were kind of not inclined to get that, it's just that it might have the smells as a pot, but it'll still work away. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it'll work with the charcoal. I don't recommend it because the smells are you know, the charcoal takes the smell out. Um, there's a reason that, you know, air filters have charcoal in them and this is no different. This is a system to actually just alleviate and eliminate that altogether. So, um, and you know, it's very low cost. Excellent. And I, I've just seen you're kind of like on the next model now that you've got the app and everything. So you might just let people know about the app. Yeah, look, I mean, we're on to Gen 2. So the new one we launched is Blomi, Lomi Bloom and it is, um, web enabled, which allows you to track your cycles. Not only the machine is also better, it has better overall efficacy. It's quieter, more efficient, but beyond that, every time you run a cycle, um, you know how much waste you displaced, how much CO2 um, that was diverted as a result of that. But then we've also created something called Lumi Rewards. So turn your waste into rewards. And with that, you develop points. And with those points, you can actually earn um, products from partners that we've uh, worked with, including things like replacement pods and and uh, filters and stuff like that, because we include our own merchandise in that. But we've created a, a marketplace where people can go in and use their wards and get other uh, products. And those products, uh, again, are all in support of environmental consciousness and things that are actually going to ultimately have a graceful end of life and benefit the planet. Excellent. And just finally, Brad, you're now an author. You've got a, a book, Startup Santa, which is kind of coming into Christmas for the launch, so a lovely present for people. I've just uh, read the first chapter. I love your writing style, but you might just let people know what it's about. Yeah, look, I, I didn't really want to write a book, to be honest with you. I, I had a couple things in my mind that I thought, you know, world doesn't need more books, and certainly it seemed too daunting to write it. But I wanted a way to capture some of the things that had happened during my my time in the world of toys. And um, and as I started to write and share some of my chapters with friends, I said, you know, it'd be selfish of you not to actually release this out to the world. So so with that in mind, I, I turned into a project. Um, so Startup Santa, Toymaker's Tale of 10 Business Lessons Learned from Timeless Toys. So to that subtitle, every chapter features an iconic toy you would know things like gi joe's monopoly jenga etch sketch tells a bit of the history of those toys and what they teach us because you know play is about our human development so there's three things that happen through play we problem solve we learn social skills and we learn how to develop our own personal skills as a result and so i talk about what those toys are teaching us i then tell a story from my life uh, typically a story of woe where I failed and made mistakes because we don't tend to learn from success. You know, success is a sucky teacher. We tend to learn from failing and stopping and reflecting about what we learned from that. And then I tie it together. And so these are the 10 principles uh, that I've come across that have helped, uh, I guess, become more aware of how to live a life more full and with more abundance. And uh, I think it's also a fun themology as we move into Christmas. Listen, totally enjoyed the conversation, Brad. You might let people know where they can find you. Yeah, if you want to reach out to me personally, you can go to bradpeterson.com and that's spelled with all E's as an echo and D as in Delta. Um, so you'll find out more about me and what's going on. Um, if you want to find out about the book, go to startupsantabook.com. 
And uh, there is actually a free chapter guide. There's some videos, some other things that we've included for your benefit. And if you want to learn more about the companies, I encourage you to go to Lomi.com, which is L-O-M-I. Uh, is that Lima, Oscar, Mike, India? India, I think so. <laughs> and then um, Pila.com is where we make the, the Pilacase.com is where we make the phone cases. And that's Papa Echo Lima Alpha Case.com. And uh, yeah, there's more there you can learn. Okay, perfect. I'll make sure I put all the links for it on the audio and the video. Thank you very much, Brad. Thank you, Roy. It's really great connecting with you and appreciate our conversation today. No problem. So you find everything about me on bio.link forward slash podcaster. That's all for the awakening, meditation, and speaking podcast. Until next week, take care. So I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. You'll find everything about me on bio.link forward slash podcaster with all my podcasts, and you'll find it you see in the QR code in the graphic that's shown. I'd like again to thank my sponsors. So if you or someone you know struggling with anxiety and want to know how to be 100% anxiety-free six weeks without therapy or drugs, Daniel Packard's Anxiety Solution Program company offers a six-week system that permanently solves anxiety at an astounding 90% success rate. People who join the program only pay at the end once they have clear, measurable results. If you're interested in learning more, go to permanentanxietysolutions.com where you can book a free consultation with Daniel. Do you fight blood pressure and or want to get off the meds? Doctors are amazed at what Zona Plus can do. You can get a $50 discount with my code Roy, zona.com slash discount slash Roy. And you'll see it in the QR code as well as Daniel's QR code. Quality manufacturer of metal products for telecommunication and workshop equipment and other metal materials. you see the brochure there in the QR code. And let me know if you would like a quotation shipped internationally at very competitive price. I'd like to thank all my sponsors and also all my listeners. Be sure to give me a thumbs up, five-star rating, share with your friends, really helps. And I also have a video on how to give a five-star rating because a lot of people have wrote to me asking me that they don't know how to do that. Until next week, take care.